0: Welcome to the Real Estate Addicts Podcast. This is episode 14 with your hosts, Mark Savatsky from
1: Choose Boston. Dan Rubin,
0: HRV Homes. And Ray Hurto, HRV Homes. And we're here today with our guest.
1: Timothy White, general manager, J.L. Dunn Company.
0: Awesome. Tim, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Did you stay up for the Bruins game last
1: night? I did not. No? No. Second period, I went to bed, <laughs> I'm going to be honest. Were
0: you just calling it? You figured the cup I, wasn't...
1: I needed to be fresh for this interview. I yeah. couldn't be uh, <laughs> dragging into to be sharp. <laughs> I stopped watching after the first period. Yeah, it Two-nothing, didn't, it didn't it look like... like it was going to go our way early. No. They, they
0: didn't seem to really show up to the garden, unfortunately, nope. but nope. hey, well, good season. Is. I'll take two to three. Yeah. About two to four every year. Yeah. So, hey, Tim, let's jump into it. Um, you said you're the general manager at J.L. Dunn Construction. Can you tell us a little about the company, how you guys uh, were founded, and what you sort of specialize in and do every day? Sure.
1: So Jail Dunn was founded in 2010 by Laura White, who is my wife. At the time, I was consulting with First Cliff Construction Consulting. We're doing a lot of consulting work for some of the larger downtown Boston owners. And um, we found those owners asking for a recommendation for people to help them with the early phases of some of their larger projects, Uh, you know, the impairment plans, that type of thing. So we began to recommend J.L. Dunn, and then as that took off, it became apparent to me that the construction company could use some more expertise, so I started spending more and more of my time involved with J.L. Dunn. Eventually took on a role as a general manager, and since probably 2011, we've been working as a traditional general contractor in the Boston area.
0: What type of jobs do you guys most typically take on?
1: So... Primarily, Jail Dunn specializes in a lot of adaptive reuse. Back Bay, South End is a big portion of our market. Uh, We primarily work in Boston, East Boston occasionally, but mostly Back Bay, particularly in the last five or seven years.
0: Is it safe to say you sort of cut your teeth doing post and beam buildings, loft style stuff? Did you you do a lot of that coming up?
1: So Jail Dunn is our second firm. We started our first firm, I started our first firm in 1989, T.R. White Company. We grew that from a van, essentially, to about $120 million a year in sales. And we did, at that point in time, we did a lot of the Fort Point uh, rehabs. In fact, we probably did 90% of it during the dot-com boom.
2: Wow. Yeah. What happened? Uh, well, so that's an happened-
1: interesting story unto itself, right? So very successful, well-capitalized, profitable company that makes the decision to go into the public arena. And then the story goes from there. So we entered the public works, primarily schools, in the late 90s with the attitude that you know we could overcome some of those challenges with client service and attention to detail and honesty. And uh, that turned out to be somewhat of a flawed concept. And then we had the recession of 2000 and uh, found ourselves with just a large backlog of public work. And it just didn't work out profitable at the end. So in 2004, we took the equity out of that company and wound it down, successfully wound it down. But it was a very good run. Uh, Mm -hmm. It was hard to see it go, but it was a natural evolution of a construction company.
3: And how many uh, people do you have working for you, under you? Is it mostly... In house uh, individuals? Do you have independent contractors or some mixture of that?
1: Yeah, so we have, we run between 17 and 25 people on a daily basis in house, everywhere from uh, directors of construction all the way down to the warehouse staff, but primarily estimators, superintendents, field managers, a lot of carpenters and laborers.
0: Let's talk high level. The industry seem to shift towards a construction manager role rather than the traditional general contractor. And everyone calls themselves a GC, but a GC back in the day really had masons, carpenters, they self-performed. Can you talk about that trend and, and how you've seen it evolve through your career and why you think we're where we are now?
1: Yeah. And that, I think that's actually pretty interesting for the way the industry has evolved. And our industry evolves a lot. Uh, when I first started in the building in Boston in, say, 82, 83, the trend had started to go from a traditional self-performing general contractor and moving towards what people refer to as a construction manager, right? So that led to, I think, an evolution of a lot of specialty contractors, right? And, you know, you saw GCs start to give away traditional activities like line and grade, field engineering, form work, you know, and that that prompted a growth in the specialty trades because they started to assume those activities. So then the GCs started to become construction managers and move to a managerial platform. Now I think the, the term Construction managers is misused a lot. I mean, technically, a construction manager holds no contracts, holds no subcontracts, and we all know that's no longer the case. I have seen, as the years have evolved, that the CM model, people have identified that there's a loss of profitability and that subbing out all that work has lessened the revenue stream. So there has been a trend, as I've seen it in the last five to ten years for particularly the largest CMs to start to bring some of that work back, either under a separate company or in-house. A lot of times, for, I think for insurance and workers' comp and capitalization reasons, you see that as a separate company.
0: Yeah, because th- there's essentially no risk... Reward is correlated to risk. And if you are that CM we described who doesn't have any risk on any of those trades, it's tougher to make those margins on each of those things like masonry form work. Is that that a fair?
1: Right. And I mean, the business gets more and more complicated every day, right? So if you're not doing enough work to sustain the things that you need to do to do it effectively, it's problematic. If you're going to parachute in and do a little form work one day, and then you're going to be a carpenter form and the next day, you're not going to succeed. But if you want to be a traditional CGC, which we are and we pride ourselves, you have to identify portions of work and try to control that. Now, we think it makes for a better product. We think it makes for a safer job. And we think that it gives the clients a level of comfort that we can control the job and the schedule. It takes usually one or two projects with the same client for them to understand that they're actually getting a value, right? Because there's the preconceived notion that, well, the street will get it to us for less money. And they may at at first blush, but you have to prove out over time that there's a value over time. Now, the work that we do lends ourselves much more to that. We like technical uh, adaptive reuse. We like it when we're You know, shoring up a brownstone, taking out all the interior petitions, making three buildings into one building, putting a steel structure on the inside, caissons, you know, inside, shoring up the building, leaving the sod in place. Hard to do that work if you're going to just sub it out, right? And do it effectively. And we see and we lose work on occasions to people who do that and then later on can't understand why they couldn't get across the finish line and the schedule that they needed. Do you ever get a developer, an owner that comes back to you after you had bid on a job and maybe had lost
3: out to somebody who thinks they can do it on the street, and they say, "You know what? I think we messed up here. Can you well, bail
1: I'm, us out?" I've never made a developer met a developer that's made a mistake. <laughs>
0: <laughs> present, present company included. <laughs> we,
1: we would admit to our mistakes. Yeah. We make mistakes. Uh, we, we call them
3: learning opportunities.
1: Yeah. yeah, sure. Yeah, we hear that, and and we on occasions we've had to step in and help finish things. Um, in fact, we're involved with something similar to that now, but you know certainly it isn't our goal for our developmental partners to stumble right but we do hope that if you go through a process and you come back to us then that's the best we can ask
2: are you working with mostly would you say your clientele is mostly developers or a mix of developers
1: and you
2: know homeowners what's your kind of ratio there
1: so in this current economic cycle it's almost all developers you know and it's a function of the of the cycle right so I've been building in Boston for 35 years, and the construction industry in Boston has changed. 30 years ago, it was a smaller market, fewer GCs, very driven by the institutional cycle, colleges, hospitals. Believe it or not, the price point, though lower, was higher for returns. It was much more stable, less volatility. That started to change in the 90s, the dot com boom, and Foot Point changed that a little bit. This housing boom has obviously changed that quite a bit. And it's not the small all-union town that it was 30 years ago.
2: What was it like to build in the city in the 80s? And how easy was it to pull permits? And
1: was it just like kind of the wild, wild west? No. I don't think it's (laughs) ever been easy to pull a permit in the city of Boston, not since I've been doing it. I also don't think it's that hard to get permits in the city of Boston. Now, we're not on the early side like you are. I know some of your previous guests on the zoning side mentioned that it's not just the rules that are on the books. It's knowing the unwritten rules that make getting permits easier. But we do find that the city of Boston is pretty cooperative if you follow the process. In fact, in some cases, very cooperative. But knowing the process makes it easier. Correct. Yep. We've experienced the same.
0: The market is bustling right now and there's a huge skilled labor shortage. And um, just wondering, how do you go about getting competitive bids on the different trades? Is that a challenge? And how do you guys manage that?
1: It is a challenge. We manage it and we always have it. And since this, the first company I founded, we our goal is to have three go-to subs in every category. And We share the workaround. We work with them. We Hopefully, we work successfully always with them. If we don't, we move along. You need partners in the subcontracting community. You you have to. Now, having said that, you have to continually refresh, right? Or else you'll get stale. So, you know, you you pre-qualify people. You work with people. Hopefully, you're successful. If you're not successful, you know, you shake hands and move along to the next one to be successful, and uh, you do need partners.
0: You ever hear the expression, you can squeeze a sub, but you can't squeeze through them?
1: <laughs> I have not heard that <laughs> one, <no. laughs> Do you think that's true? I don't think squeezing any person in business is a good business philosophy. I mean, you don't squeeze a guy that cuts your hair. Uh, you don't squeeze your dentist. You don't squeeze your accountant. I think that smart developers, smart consumers of construction services. I don't care if you're institutional or a bank or realize that there's a cost to do business, you want to buy at a reasonably competitive cost to do business, but the bottom line the cheapest product is almost never the right product in our industry.
0: I think we had a good conversation before we went on here about kind of the idea that everyone has a professional rolodex of people, and sometimes the contractor is neglected in that conversation. You want to speak to that?
1: So that's actually a a. Uh, it's been a long term issue of mine, right? I think that the most successful projects we're involved with, you bring your construction professional to the table early. Uh, you get them involved in the decision making process early. You have them help you set your budget, set your schedule, set your expectations. One of the most frustrating things that we see is that we get a, you know, reasonably developed set of drawings. We look at it. Uh, We've been doing this long enough that we almost always immediately know approximately what it's going to cost, right? Not down to the details. Don't get me wrong. And then you run a quick series set of numbers or even a long conceptual estimate process. And you're told immediately, well, that's way over our budget, right? (laughs) And you want to say to yourself, well, why are you this far along, right? Why am I looking at, you know, three inches of drawings when we could have had this conversation with four?
3: So, Tim, what's early for you? How do you define early in the process?
1: Well, we'd like to be there as early as, I mean, we'd like to be there on day one. But if you've started the zoning process, you understand massing, you you have a basic concept of where it's going, you know, that's where we'd like to be.
0: Do you attend uh, walkthroughs with developer clients so they're in the pursuit of the building looking to acquire the property and you're there alongside giving some feedback for what they should be figuring in a pro forma?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as average, I mean, what's your typical ground up price per square foot?
1: So I can't answer that per se, right? Because we don't do a lot of repetitive units. So that's just not our niche. So first of all, most of our buildings are almost always there before we start or some phase of it is there before we start in this particular company, in this particular cycle. You're retrofitting something existing and it's usually pretty complex. It sounds like. Right. And usually the price point is higher than you would anticipate. To do a structural rehab like that with all the period, you know, in excess of five hundred dollars a square foot in most cases, and you know, then you throw in the historical component or slate, copper, you know, so it can it can get challenging.
0: I think the biggest. shortcoming or weakness in developers is that they rely on price per square foot too heavily and that they will wait to engage someone like Tim and instead plug a, you know, ballpark price per foot into a pro forma and then they get surprised and it's too late and they're already fairly far along.
1: Yeah, I mean, you you have to start the conversation someplace. I mean, you have to start running your numbers. So square footage has a point to it. And the more you do it, uh, the the more you find out that it has truisms if you're using the proper data. You know, we think that we know what one of those back bay combined three buildings, making a mixed use office retail space. We think we understand that. But if you said to me, what's, you know, square foot cost for a three to four unit wood frame building. I'm not the guy to ask that question.
3: Yeah. I think price per foot is okay. It just depends on the product, right? So when you're working with something that's unique from project to project, there'll be some variance and maybe when you're first starting out, your variances are, you know, double digits. Maybe they're 20 to 50%, something like that. But you work, you work down towards a a lower percentage and a lower number. So You can say, well, we'll be in this range, but it could still, it's still a big absolute number. It could still be hundreds of thousands of dollars. Right.
1: Depending on the size. I mean,
2: you got to use something to underwrite the deal. Exactly. Exactly.
1: Well, that's true. And, but, and they're definitely truisms. Don't get me wrong. Right. So, um, like I've, I've heard some of your previous guests talk about efficiencies. Efficiencies are key. And be it you're a housing guy or a retail guy or a commercial guy, you know as soon as you open up the drawings what's going to work out easily or not. Your square foot to facade ratio, those, they're always true. And sometimes you see these jobs oftentimes maybe designed by somebody who doesn't do it on a regular basis and they're just a tortured product. And that's where we would like to be able to have a conversation with our developmental partner to say, are you sure about this? Because the way this is trending, I think this is going to be a challenge for you to get it to pencil out.
0: Uh, let's talk about architecture and design. It's uh, you know, often bemoaned that the, the drawings are getting worse and worse. Have you seen that? Uh, do you think there's any reason that uh, maybe the quality and the completeness in an architectural and your your drawing sets are kind of suffering?
1: Yeah, that's a tough question to answer. Again, having been doing this for 35 years, right? The architectural industry, like the construction industry, has evolved. There was a time when the drawings were as complete as they possibly could be and that each detail was drawn by hand, <laughs> right? and somebody checked what somebody else drew by hand, those days are obviously over. I think that the architectural industry is under a little bit of pressure. Fees aren't what they used to be. Schedule isn't what they used to be. And so the product isn't what it always used to be. Now on there's a lot of good drawings out there, and there are some that aren't.
0: Plenty of drawing sets that just have details that are completely erroneous, don't relate whatsoever. They show a brick facade, whereas you have metal panel, there there these things happen. I think schedule is a big, a big reason personally, because we time is money, and as developers, we are always pushing harder and harder to get in the ground. And for that reason there may be changes later and unforeseen and
3: well I've also heard, you know, certain architects say well, that's the uh, carpenter to figure out, or that's the framer to figure out. You know, they should. Be, you should have a competent construction crew on site to be able to work
1: through some of the details. And I think that's a flawed discussion. So it should uh, be more collaborative. Well, collaborative is a great word. I think you, know, you hear me use the term educated consumer of construction services because professionals who've been through it three or four times begin to realize that a dollar spent in design saves 10 in construction. There is no money in change orders anymore. Change orders only slow the job down, frustrate the owner, frustrate the end user. True construction professional, particularly in a booming market like this, wants to put together a good schedule, a good budget, procure the subs early and properly, build the job, finish the job, and move on to the next one. So ones that are improperly designed or the documentation isn't where it could be, or the owner hasn't thought it through and and feels compelled to make a lot of revisions as, as you go along, slows down the process, drives up the price, and lowers the success. I mean, it's pretty intuitive if you think about it. So getting
3: back to that collaborative nature be, and getting in as, as early as possible in the process, this would be an exact reason why you'd want to be in that process early. You can say, hey, we're missing a detail here, or hey, how are these two connection points going to work? Or
1: Yeah, and I, I mean, I don't think that process gets right down to the detail of connection points, but it gets down to the concepts, you know, on a early big structural package. How are we going about this? And on new construction, wood frame being, well, even in wood frame, If you have your construction professional at the table, they're going to be able to talk to you about efficient ways to do that and do it quicker and the end product being better. We find people focus a lot on the finishes when it comes to dollars and cents. And we find that we find the big dollars in the early stuff that people don't think about, right? What's the type of foundation we're using here? How many tons of steel are we using? Can we lighten up the steel? So, you can save big chunks of change early in that and then spend time later on moving to the saving dollars and pennies in the ceramic tile. People don't
2: realize that the majority
1: of your costs are behind the walls, not in front of
2: the walls. Or in the ground. Or in the ground. Yeah. Right.
0: Can you give us an example of a job that you worked on where there was an entire sort of mind, uh, a shift in mindset or approach that maybe came about from, from your review of the drawings?
1: Well, one easy one, and I don't know if I can take credit with coming up with the idea, but uh, we were involved with a very large project in Connecticut, New Haven. It was cast in place and steel. And one of my team members changed the design to stra- Staggered Trust, and that cost, cut uh, 10, 20 million off the job and made it work. That's probably one of the most dramatic ones I've ever seen. Absolutely. Yeah, but it changed the core. The project wouldn't have been built otherwise.
0: Let's talk. Go back to time. So we said time is money, and time is precious. So uh, a form of contract delivery that owners are looking to maybe more and more is guaranteed maximum price (GMP). That's as opposed to a more traditional lump sum. Can we talk a little bit about the benefits or the the differences between the two sure. and what's appropriate where?
1: Absolutely, they're both appropriate in the right project. So we happen to be a big fan of a negotiated GMP, and we like to build the schedule and the budget. Sorry, can we just talk about what each of those, could define each of those and
2: what they mean sure. first for people who don't?
1: So uh, uh, the traditional lump sum is what people think of the traditional procurement process for construction services. Here's a set of drawings. We're going to have a walkthrough on the first, get your request for information's RFI in on the 15th, and we want the price on the 20th. The traditional way that has evolved was all the prices went into an envelope. You open the envelope. In a public setting, and whoever had the low number won the job. Rip and read. Right, rip and read. (laughs) And some public work is still done that way. You see less and less of that that requires a good set of drawings, a complete set of drawings, or you're at risk. And it also requires the owner to understand that every change or every omission in the drawings is going to be a conversation. And it's usually a conversation about... I need one of two things or both, time and money. A GMP, guaranteed maximum price, is a little bit more collaborative. It can be competitive or it can be simply negotiated. And that implies two important things, that the contractor is pricing what is reasonably inferable in the drawings. And that's a big definition and that's a challenge. It also implies, it doesn't imply, it clearly states in the contract that the general contractor or the construction manager is working in the best interest of the owner. And that is the key part that many people choose to ignore. You're saying that you are here to advocate for the owner and you are here to build a product that is reasonably inferable in the drawings for a price that shall not exceed a maximum point. And then there's many business points that you can negotiate out after that. What you get reimbursed, how you get reimbursed, how much you get reimbursed, what you don't get reimbursed for. And then there's also usually business points about shared savings, whether you are going to share the savings with the owner or not. JL Dunn does not advocate for sh- shared savings. We take the position that it's your money, and then if we don't spend it, you should get it. And that we've already agreed to advocate from you the day we sign the bottom line. Some developers, and I understand it, think that it's more of a motivation tool. If we have a piece of the puzzle, right? If we're going to get a piece, this could be some truisms to that. We think it muddles up the conversation. We think it leads to padding up line items or increasing line items so you can give money back. Uh, it's just two different business philosophies.
0: Mm. Can you give us an example in a GMP contract where something was reasonably inferred from the drawings? It might not have been explicit however your group picked it up included it with the subcontractor and it didn't result in an extra cost
1: uh, yeah i mean they're, and they the examples are endless i just had one cross my desk today i always seem to get screwed Maybe. by them
0: and so right. i'm always trying to make that <laughs> argument and i'm like how could you not
1: You're right i just had one come by my desk the other day we're doing a rehab over in cambridge it's supposed to get all new wood floors the demo drawings don't call taking the wood floors out on one floor and You know, people working, subs working for me and my internal staff say, well, this should be an extra. I said, absolutely not. I mean, it's clear that we're supposed to be putting in new wood floors, right? It's reasonable for for us to assume that we were going to take out the old ones. That's an easy example. It's endless, the amount of conversations you can have. And so that's the point where as professionals, you choose your clients when you can and you choose your contractors when you can. Because certain clients understand and are more willing to work with the mistakes that people make as humans. And certain contractors are more than willing to take advantage of the situation when it presents itself.
2: So, going back to that, so as a developer, if I'm out there looking to bid a job and looking to hire a GC, what should I, what questions should I be asking? What due diligence should I be doing on my potential? GC and I mean, uh, just like you would probably be doing your due diligence on the developer. I mean, how how do you vet a general contractor,
1: and especially in this day and age? Uh, that's an interesting question. So first of all, Boston is a notoriously small city, so word of mouth is, I think, pretty important. I don't know, you know I mean there's the you, you see standard RFPs, right, requests for proposals and they ask some pointed questions in a lot of cases, right? Uh, some easy ones, what's your uh, CMR rating, so that's your uh, how many accidents you have on a job, right? If that's and that's a usually a good indicator of whether you run a project safely. Uh, what your bonding capacity is, you don't see bonds pulled in the private market much anymore, but that's a pretty clear indicator of uh, someone's financial stability. What litigation disputes do you have? Uh, that's a pretty clear indicator. Have you had any bankruptcies or any other claims? or Have you ever non-completed a project? There's many questions you can ask like that, but I really do think that like anything, a lot of it is doing your own homework, you know, and talking to people that you've worked with. Related
0: experience and background. I think yeah. it's, the, it's the most yeah. obvious, but the most important is, have you just done four of these types of building in this neighborhood? And if the answer is yes, that's, that's pretty good.
1: And a lot of it is your expectation. And so referrals. The, right. And and the construction industry is a palette, right? I mean, there's a lot of different projects out there. I mean, there's very complex ones, there's somewhat similar ones, there's extremely high-end finishes, there's complicated urban spaces. It's not a one shot, what's we all don't fit every niche, right? And if somebody, t- I always like the guy that you park next to on the on the bridge coming in, in the morning that says, I do residential, commercial, industrial, and painting. Oh, geez. Right? <laughs> they do, yeah. yeah, They do it all, right? You know, I mean, so if you were going to, if you're doing a 30 story building in the Seaport district, we're not the contractor to call. We're not. But, you know, some of those guys are very, very good at that work, extremely good at that work. If you're going to do a six story structural rehab on Newberry Street, they're not the person to call for that job either. Right?
3: Yeah, this niche, feel, niche it, like being in your own right. little niche. I feel like buying and selling a home, doing construction work on a home, and maybe auto repair shops are probably just the most contentious spaces for consumers and business owners because it seems like nobody's ever happy. Always, Someone's always saying, oh, you're screwing me on the price here. The other guy's like, listen, I, your car is messed up. Your house is messed up. So in, it's just- in
0: theory, a GMP should solve some of that because it's a very open book format. So if you think there's an asymmetry of information or the contractor has something you don't, you're entitled to see every last dollar spent.
1: Well, and the GMP has another big advantage that we didn't talk about. So the GMP allows you to put the contractor under contract before the estimate is completed and before the contract value is set. The GMP, the standard AIA GOP, is a two-part contract. The first is the basic boilerplate legal language of the contract. And usually in there, there is a fee structure set not always, but sometimes, then the actual GMP and the actual cost of the work and the actual schedule is an ad- addenda to the contract. So the value to that is, say you have a site that is complicated, you're going to be in design for a while, but your schedule is pressing. You know, Maybe you have some remedi- remediation to do, maybe you have a building to take down, maybe you have to shore up the abutting buildings, underpin... That allows you to start that work and start it in a controlled manner while the rest of your project is developing and your budget is developing, right? So that also allows you to have the contractor sitting at the table, and the contractor knows that he's engaged at this point in time. So it's just not a dance. So now your contractor is able to meet with your structural engineer, your soils guy, your facade engineer, your architect, and you can work that process through as you go along. And that avoids, in a perfect setting, the design, the draw, and the redraw. Design it once, draw it again. The dreaded value engineering process, you know, which leads to bulletin one, two, three, four, five, and then the process starts. And that's the process that gets people frustrated. Did you ever
0: find it hard in your experience and years to to manage uh, your obligations to the owner, the subcontractor? There's sometimes a tension there, and how do you balance that?
1: That's a very, very, very valid point. And there is a tension there. Again, in that contract, we're talking about the GMP, you've obligated to uh, advocate for the owner. That obligation doesn't mean that you are there to treat your subcontracting partners unfairly or unrealistically. So there's a constant balance there. And it can be tough. There's no two ways about it. And then it is business. You have to protect your firm. The smarter CMs, particularly the larger or the mid-sized ones, protect themselves and their owner and their subcontractors in many ways. There's a document floating around that it's called either the Exhibit B or the Attachment B, or everybody has a different name for it, where educated GCs, CMs, write out a fairly detailed scope of the work. They have, they fill in the blanks, you know, you budget holds or... Allowances for things that so that you have some room to treat everybody properly and you know protect yourself, but it can be a challenge. There's no two ways about it. The construction industry as a GC essentially you're herding cats all day long, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, baby baby, baby- <laughs> babysitting, adult babysitting, yeah.
0: sometimes it's too. another term we I like to yeah. say uh, it's like being the conductor of a band that doesn't want to play together. Right.
1: Sometimes one of the smartest things someone in my seat will do is walk away from a project. So when you sense that your partners are not necessarily all working in the same direction, and you just sometimes have to say no.
0: Sometimes as an owner, I feel like the um, contractor knows that their relationship and the longevity of that is going to be with the subcontractor and maybe not the developer, unless you're related Beal or some massive developer who's going to continue to put food on the table. And that's why I sometimes feel like a GC favors a sub in in a...
1: you know, and and I can I could see where you would see that, right? Mm. You you don't survive without subcontractors and vendors, right? It's not just the subs; it's the vendors all the way through the food chain. Um, it's tough. I mean, there's there's no two ways about it. And again, to repeat myself, part of it, the way that you can handle that the best is flesh out as many of those obstacles as you can early in the procurement process.
3: How important are the actual finishes, finish selections? to getting to the GMP
1: number? Do you need to get a full spec sheet from a developer at day one? So it depends on the market. If you're in the residential market, it's huge. I mean, it's, it's everything. So if you're doing high-end condos or high-end rental units, and as we've seen, the quality of product in the city has come up and up and up and it's getting more and more creative and people are looking for more and more. And so there can be some big swings there. If you're doing spec office or, you know, core shell Retail on the first floor, office above, you know, it's not that big of a deal. I mean, let me take that back, right? You, you need to know the fundamentals. Is it a slate roof? Is it a rubber roof? Is it a copper windows? Is it, you know, copper cladding or not, right? You know, you need to know the facade. You need to know the structure. Interior finishes, you're doing a lobby. There can be some swing there. You put an elevator in, the cab's going to be, you know, but those are quantifiable. For sure.
3: It sounds like, so you have the GMP side with the between you and the developer. That's one big contract. I'm assuming with all the subs, you have individual contracts as well?
1: Oh, absolutely. Right. And that's really important to Mark's earlier point, how the, the GC or CM handles the subs and the way they procure that and the contracts they put them under is hugely important because just because you signed a contract that said you're going to advocate for the owner doesn't mean that everybody else is on the same wavelength as you are. So it's extremely important. Yeah, I find with us, it's it,
3: especially when we bring out a new sub, our contract's not you know two pages it's i think it's like seven or eight pages and it, usually it has a lot of clauses around penalties and things not to do from things we've learned over the years but once we get through that with somebody a new sub they understand why it's there they understand that we're not here just for one one job we're here for the long term and they're kinda of, they get used to it after a
1: while. Do you find the same same thing with your subs? Well, first of all, I haven't seen a three or four page subcon agreement in a very long period of time. Though <laughs> 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 so I do remember when there used to be one eight and a half by eleven, you know, we're happy to award you. It's like <laughs> it's like sheet the sheet cl- metal in the <laughs> amount of you know, $2 million, right? <laughs> it's like the closing documents to buy a house that used to yeah. be this thick, and now it's almost right. 500 pages, a ream of paper. So ours has become ungodly long. We keep paring it back constantly. What we do find in our firm, every firm is slightly different, but I think this is a trend. We have standards, and we are. We talk to people. We want all our contracts to be the same. Uh, we do negotiate some portions of it occasionally, but seldomly. But when you work with the same people over and over again, they realize they see the same thing over and over again. And this is important. The best contracts in the construction industry never leave the file cabinet. You sign them, you put them away, and you never see them again. Because once you find yourself reading it, you're going down the wrong road.
0: We talked a lot about cost. Let's, let's jump into schedule. I've heard you say before that uh, a job will take precisely as long as you let it. Can you give us some tips on managing a schedule and uh, not letting the schedule, you know, sticking to the it, schedule to manage the job and not the other way around?
1: Right. I think, I think this is from our younger yeah. years together. Yeah. Mark, a job sure. will take exactly as long as it's allowed. Yeah. So the business is still a business of the wills, I think. Um, and at some point in time, you have to impose your will on the project. Realistic schedules help you make it on time. But they will take exactly as long as you allow it. And that's not just you as the boss. It's your people in the field. It's your purchasing manager. It's your carpenter foreman, right? Closing a wall on the first is the first. It's not the second. It's not the fourth. It's not the eighth. And it's close all the walls. It's not just this one, but we're going to leave that one open. And it's a mindset that you have to get your people engaged in. And it starts at the top. But it has to go all the way down to the guy at the end. They have to realize that the dates mean something. Having said that, the dates have to be realistic. You have to have a flow. Every project has a rhythm to it. And if you don't keep the rhythm, if you don't keep people working in sequence and the subcontractors can't see that they have an opportunity to succeed and make money, you will not succeed. And that flows to your side of the table too, right? And we talked about change orders are a problem right now in the industry. Every time you publish a change, somebody's got to stop. It's very simple. Keep the changes to a minimum, keep the rhythm going on the job. The job is a leave. Jobs are a living, breathing thing. There's no two ways about it. And if you keep that rhythm, it's like a workout, right? If you keep doing it and you keep doing it right, you're going to gain somewhere. If you start and stop, you're not. Now, it's obviously easier to hold guys accountable when they're in-house, but how
2: do you hold your subs accountable? Do you have penalties in your contracts?
1: So We don't believe in penalties. So we don't believe in liquidated damages. We pretty typically won't take them. And there's a reason for that. It takes the collaborative part of the process out. If we have to defend ourselves against a $5,000 a day liquidated damage, every time you or the architect or the engineer or the mechanical engineer does something, we have to put you on notice because you have to defend yourself. Same goes to the subs. And I realize it's hard because you guys have a lot of money on the line, right? And you have a lot of covering costs, but I just don't think that it uh, works, frankly. So if a sub,
2: if you agree to a realistic time frame, mm-hmm. for example, so 30 days to rough something right, and they're at day 45 and they're not done, how do you manage expectations with a sub? How do you handle that situation?
1: So you manage the expectation by publishing, again, accurate, realistic schedules and updating them properly. We have clauses in our subcontract agreement that says we'll supplement your workforce if we have to. We also have clauses that say we'll replace you, but seldomly does that work out to everybody's best interest. But the reality is you have to have people on the ground that are staying ahead and paying attention, right? So nobody gets 10 days behind schedule overnight. Nobody gets a month behind schedule overnight. They get there one day at a time. If you reel it in at day five, you've cut it in half. If you wait till it's day 30, you're in a big problem. It's it's a process. It's a challenge, but it's up and down the food chain.
0: I sometimes see with schedule... I find myself arguing with general contractors as often that their schedules are too optimistic as I think that they're, they're too long. It's, it's a funny position. It's like, you've missed this three weeks in a row. What makes you think all of a sudden your drywaller will finish a floor in three days? Like, can we just set a realistic baseline? It's an awkward position as an owner.
1: No, I think it's a very valid point. In fact, it's an extremely valid point. And I think it starts during a award. You put out an RFP, request for proposal, to three or four CMs or GCs. And typically if you don't have a price point yet, you're asking for schedule, general conditions. Maybe we should explain that to your listeners. And fee, cost of insurance. So to be the competitive guy at the table, you promote a shorter schedule, less general conditions. So general conditions is the staff cost to run a project and a lower fee. So by definition, you've given it, you're you're trending towards giving it to a guy that has the least amount of money and the least benefit. To try to get a job done in the shortest period of time. Now, if anybody at this table thinks that makes sense, then I'd be surprised. Now, when you're going to award it, you'll convince yourself that it makes sense because that's a natural trend. Part of it is the expectations you set when you set up the job. Peer review, I think, is a big help. We have some clients who will, on occasion, you know, have somebody else look at it. A lot of our clients also have a director of construction or somebody who's, you know, a sage, wise person who is supposed to understand these things. uh, And that's helpful. What's one of your biggest pet peeves in the industry right now? I don't have any. (laughs) (laughs) Come on. Well, I think my industry is asked to commit a lot of capital with limited returns. Our fees are pretty small. Our cost of doing business is reasonably high. And our capital has value that we don't see reflected very often. We all have these contracts that say, insert you know, the interest rate if you're not paid on time. But it's, a, it's just a non-starter in our industry. Um, but if we went to the bank to borrow that capital, we pay interest from the day we get there. So the concept that we should invest our capital into your project, that's a bit of a pet peeve.
0: I mean, GCs who are asked to be a bank. And, and, and a lot, it. Yeah, yeah. I
1: see right. that too. And in this market here, we pride ourselves on paying all our vendors within terms, so 30 days. And we do that to get people to pay attention to your project and to stay on schedule, like you're talking about, right? And be willing to go the extra mile because they're getting funded. So if we're funding our operation and we're funding the subs and the vendors, and then we're waiting an additional 30 days on top of... That becomes an expensive operation. We do it. It's what our industry does. But sometimes I don't think that we get the credit for it that maybe we should. It's also,
3: um, I guess, a competitive advantage because that means not everybody driving a truck around saying I do residential, commercial, industrial can get into this game either.
1: That's true. The bar of entry in the, in the construction business at some levels is low, right? Now, if you're talking about the work you're seeing at the Seaport District over Ritz-Carlton, that's a whole different ballgame. You know, what you're doing is what I perceive you're doing. Young kid willing to hustle in a truck can go a long way and get a lot of work done. I was one of them, so I understand.
0: Tim, can you leave us with some of your favorite, uh, give us your favorite construction
1: saying or truism? I, you know, I saw that on your list. I they they come naturally. I'm not I'm not usually uh, I they, I don't. You've got a million. I've heard. I it do have, have a, a million of them, most- but they 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 come spontaneously.
2: What about some good a good story? Any good stories like crazy things that you've seen over the past thirty plus
1: years? Yeah. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of them. Here's a crazy story. I still enjoy this. Like I like being out there when the sun's coming up and there's a cup of coffee in your hand and you're standing around with a bunch of guys. So, you know, people talk about, you know, how going to work is a grind year in, year out. And I'm, you know, approaching 60 and I'm still happy to be out there every day. So if that's not nuts, I don't know what else is.
0: Agreed. Yeah. Yeah, I like it. I especially like when we're framing. That's my favorite part of the job.
1: Yeah. See the
0: building really take shape quick. So you're out there with a mark every morning with a cup of
2: coffee
1: and the guy.
0: Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Or Yeah, or
1: we we were this we were in the suits and ties guys back then. <laughs> yeah. like then. Uh, yeah.
0: I, I was gonna say uh, some beers at the end of the day, but I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say that. Only, uh, uh, right. My insurance guys wouldn't appreciate it.
3: Uh, are there any tools or um, any little special tips or tricks that you employ to um, kind of keep everything?
2: Yeah, project manage any yeah. p-
3: like special project management
2: software you use to kind of keep track of all your scheduling mm-hmm. and everything.
1: Yeah, so you know we've we use we're on procore not to advertise for somebody else. We find that the canned tools work well in certain situations. We're also a big proponent of building our own spreadsheets and and tools that we like internally. We find them easier to adapt some of our more uh, complex projects. I guess the biggest turnaround that I've seen and the one that I truly really embrace on the technology side is, you know, our ability to give the superintendents and for us it goes all the way down to the competent foreman um, electronic devices to access the documents. Document control which is a huge problem in the industry has become a lot easier. Unfortunately there's a whole cadre of right out of college kids or right out of high school kids that have lost their job of sitting in the trailer and just updating blueprints, right? (laughs) Taping the bulletins in there. But, you know, when you're able to go, you know, I can walk on a job site and pull out my iPad. And if a superintendent has a question, we can pull it right up right there. I mean, that really has been a game changer. Building information management, Revit, you know, they're they're great tools, clash uh, detection. At our level, we don't use it as much. Part of the problem in the construction industry is it's one thing for the CMs and the GCs to have this level of technology. Pushing it down to the subs sometimes can be a challenge. You know, in the larger work, the subs are very qualified at that. In fact, in some cases, they're more qualified. As you get down mid-level, there's still a cadre. When you get down the next level, it starts to fall off. It can be frustrating that, we're investing that, and we're not able to push it down. We
2: run into that all the time because you know we use software, and it gives us a, the ability for our subs to have an app on their phone or something, and they can we can put files on there, and we can take pictures and and push to them. Like if we need an up, you know, something changed or highlighted and scheduling, but like you said, getting a, the technology adoption is. It's been very challenging. Obviously, like you said, the level that we're at
1: versus the level where a lot of other guys are at. The construction industry is not homogeneous. It's just not, right? There's many, many, many levels of it. And and you go outside of New England, and it's a whole different ballgame in a lot of cases. You talked about how do you keep your subs re- responsible for the schedule, and how do you make sure that they're advocating for the owner, right? And a lot of these things come hand in hand. You find the the better vendors... Have a better handle on technology. They have more competent foremen, and that is another pet peeve that we're struggling with. You know, it's so busy out there. The workforce is changing. It's difficult to rely on the subcontractors' foreman. Back when I first started, most of these guys had come out of World War II or Korea. There was an an absolute chain of command. They understood that there was a foreman. He had his second in command, right? And they worked their way down and it took you 25 years to get back up to that position or 20 years. Those days are long gone, right? So a lot of pressure gets put on the superintendents because they're not only running the project, they're not only running your crew, though we constantly make sure we have a foreman. Now they're trying to make sure that the HVAC foreman knows what or mechanic. Or let's just say guy who happens to be there that day sometimes, right? <laughs> what he's doing, and you know, and, and it gets it's it can be hard.
0: The last thing I'll say is sometimes uh, people think if you build it, they will come, but it doesn't always work. You can have all the tools and software in the world, and you right. know, yeah, yeah. unless people really want to embrace it, it's worthless.
1: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> my accountant department is still talks to people that say, ask them to turn the fax machine on one yeah. one so they can send something <laughs> over. Right? So, yeah, I,
2: we have people that say, hey, can you fax this? Uh, Apple, right. Like, can you fax this over, this like order form over? And I was like, uh, can I email it? Like, yeah. right. what are we doing?
1: Like, we're trying to move to a platform to, to stop having to issue checks, like to be able to wire subs funds. And that has uh, not met with a lot of success. And, you know, as the fees get smaller and you're trying to do more with less, that would be huge for us, right? If we set everybody up, here's the pay run or the check run for that job for that month, sends, right? Mm-hmm. Can't get it done. So we're still printing checks, putting them in an envelope, putting them in the mailbox, you know. You'd think they'd want their money faster. You would think, you know,
3: it'll come around. But Those are the guys that still think the money should just get cashed at the uh,
1: check cashing place, put under the mattress, you know. <laughs>
0: still some of that. Keep it I safe. Some of
1: that, <laughs> yeah. No, I, we, we're... We don't see much of that anymore, (laughs) thank God, but
0: sure. (laughs) All right, well, hey, Tim, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks, everyone, for listening. thank you. This has been been been
3: great. And if um, people want to learn more about your company or reach out, uh, what's the best way for them to do it?
1: So email is always great. P. white at J-L-Dunn, dot com, or my office, 617-265-5000. Or you could call Mark, and he knows how to get a hold of me.
0: <laughs> or you can fax him <laughs> Yeah, thanks, everybody. <laughs> Thank you. Right. Right. It's been a Thank pleasure. You.